Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful You podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us in the studio, Barbara Bash. Barbara was a calligraphy teacher at Naropa in the early years and studied with Chongyom Trumpa Rinpoche. She is a lover of the alphabet and practitioner of calligraphic art with brush, pen, and pencil. Her contact with Chongyom Trumpa guided her into a deeper play with the ancient principles of heaven, earth, and human in the creative act. She has collaborated at Naropa and beyond with musicians, storytellers, and dancers. So welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm really glad to be here with you. Awesome. You kind of just missed the snow, too. We just literally had snow last night. It all went away, and you just showed up. Well, I actually experienced it all day yesterday, so I got a taste of it. Okay. And where'd you come into town from? I'm from the Hudson Valley, upstate New York, a couple hours north of New York City. Okay, great. What's awesome is the last time I met with you was at the 40th anniversary of Naropa. I think I was my first year as like a junior at the college and I was working in the events crew and I was working a camera and you were there and I ended up filming a lot of your work and I ended up collaborating with you on a video. And so it just feels really full circle for me. Maybe that, what do they call the Zen circle? That's right. The Enzo. Well, I just am so glad to know who created that video because it's still up there on my website and it really caught something, you know, a quality of that time. And it really did feel like going back home when I saw that video. I was like, wow, this is a very special little moment. And what's awesome about you is the fact that you used to teach at Naropa in the early years. And I'm wondering, can you let our audience know what did you teach? And also, what were you doing before you actually came to Naropa? And maybe some of the factors that made you want to come to Naropa and teach at a private Buddhist university? Yeah. At the time, it was called Naropa Institute. It wasn't even university yet. Yeah. Well, I had been working for probably 10 years in the Bay Area as a Western calligraphic graphic designer. And it was a time in the Bay Area of a real a flowering of book arts. And so there were a lot of bookbinders and, and letterpress printers. And I came into that mix loving, loving the alphabet. And I found a wonderful teacher, Georgiana Greenwood, and I began to really drop into the multiplicity of alphabets from Rome to the Renaissance, all through the Middle Ages, reflecting all these different qualities of these centuries. And those alphabets became my palette of colors to work as a contemporary calligrapher doing bar mitzvah invitations and wedding invitations and signage and and wine labels and all sorts of stuff. When was this? So it was in the 70s. Okay. Yeah, really that whole decade. So it was in, and I connected with Naropa 
around 76. I began to come in the summers. I was coming and I did dance. I was studying meditation. I did drawing. I did art history. I always felt like it was like my life and Buddhism kind of linked up at that point, you know? Yeah, yeah. I feel you. Yeah. And then uh, I felt this calling. As I said, a lot of artists were being drawn to the atmosphere of that time. Mm-hmm. It's like an artistical magnet. Yeah, I just like, what? what's going on here? <laughs> so I decided to move from the Bay Area to Boulder because there was this opportunity to teach at Naropa. Now, I was teaching Western pen calligraphy at a Buddhist college, which there was one moment, I don't remember how it happened, because it wasn't like I was asking for permission from Chogyam Trungpa, but I remember saying, is this okay that I'm, this is a Buddhist school, there's a lot of Asian interest, Tibetan, and I'm teaching medieval alphabets. And he said to me, you go into your own tradition deeply, and it will lead you to everything. So it really did give me a certain permission to go deeply into my own, what I feel was the alphabet, it was the alphabet I was born into. And there's something that you can do in the culture that you were born into or the forms that you were born into that I think it allows, I believe it allows you to leap as a calligrapher because you aren't really having to even think about those letter forms. They're so deeply embedded in you. So I, I showed up here and I, I think of myself during those years as a, the kind of precision that I had of those pen alphabets and lining and the manuscripts and the you know, I was I was loosening up, but not that much, you know. And then I got into this scene, and there were these jazz musicians like Jerry Grinelli, who said... He's a drummer. He's a drummer. He said, BB, just come into my, my class and make some brush strokes. And I'm like, I, I've never done that, you know. He said, oh, come on, you can do that. And then I started... Yeah, he drums on the wall. He <laughs> like, just right. gets up and starts drumming on the wall. You're like, okay. Right. He, you know, if he doesn't have drums, he just can do it from... Pots and pans. I mean, he was, that was a big one. I connected deeply with this woman, Susan Edwards, who was in the poetics program. And she and I started performing together because she was a storyteller and kind of in a psychic, intuitive. And she was telling these ancient Sumerian stories. And I began to map them Inanna, Gilgamesh, and everything. Yeah, serious. What is it? Serious A coming down? That's and, right. Yeah, <laughs> That's I know right. The story. <laughs> yes. So it was a time of, um, kind of pulling me out of the studio and onto the stage and taking chances that I hadn't done before. Becoming a performer. Becoming a performer. Stretching your artistic abilities. I was also thinking, too, uh, how you go deep into your tradition is, is appreciation doesn't discriminate. Appreciation, that's nice. So if you can appreciate your craft, you can appreciate another craft because you know what it takes to do what it does. Right. You understand the principles. I'm wondering, what is your astrological sign? <laughs> I'm a Libra. Okay. Cause <laughs> I'm just curious. Cause I'm like, I like the way we can swing letters and how they look. Sometimes what they say and how they look are just as important. And when I hear calligraphy, I think of a design aspect to language and the, the alphabet. Right. But I think you're getting to something 
that also started to emerge for me that I, I talk about it as onomatopoeia words, that words like, that look like what they mean. So I had these alphabets, and they were kind of the bones that I was working with, and they were reflecting the times in the Middle Ages of the fullness and the tensions and the, the clarity of the eye and then the, the illegibility of the hand. And so I got to have a lot of variation of ways to express through the same alphabet. So I think the poetic atmosphere at Naropa pushed me into writing in a more expressive way. And then it took me into leaving off the alphabet and just having the alive line that was responding to music, uh, the calligraphic line. It's like you're, it's the alphabet of this moment, um, responding to dancers, responding to stories, responding to a drummer. So it, it really was a stretching time and exciting because of that crossing over. Hmm. What I think I'm hearing you say is if I go in that room over there and I hit my drum set, if I hit my snare drum, it's kind of going to create you to perform a certain line. If I hit my tom-tom, it's going to create you. So instead of having a specific language, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you have dung, 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 dung. You know, you're more responding to your atmosphere and then seeing what line wants to be painted instead of like assuming what wants to be painted. Right. Am I, am I hearing yeah, that right? Yeah, no, that's great. I feel like it's this range that each of us has like you'd say, a range of many different parts of us that come out. I have a range as a calligrapher of many different lines. And the other thing that happened during that time was sitting in a Dharma arts seminar. I think this was around 1978, so I hadn't quite moved to Boulder yet. And Choyim Trungpa was, who was a calligrapher himself and had, it was also working with the brush. He said, it's possible to make a brushstroke that expresses your whole life. And I remember sitting in this big auditorium. It was probably Sacred Heart there. But what was so amazing to me was that I took in that statement and thought to myself, I want to make a really big brushstroke. Now, I was not a outrageously big sort of person at that point. I felt like there was a kind of a meek quality that I was moving into this world, this Naropa world. But I always say that it's like each of us has an inner teacher. And that inner teacher was saying to me, go big because it's going to give you range. You're going to, you've got the precision and that's good. And you want the range of working big and loose. And then you have so many different voices, so many different visual voices. So that combination of the performance stuff that began to happen and then figuring out how to make big horsehair brushes out of bamboo and twine and horsehair and creating a process for people to experience making those strokes and using the body in doing it. It was not just a small, I mean, I love the intimacy of handwriting, of course. And again, it's just range. So I was working bigger in these performative things. And then I was working 
on these large sheets of paper and often in community, which is what I just did this morning. I did a big brushwork shop over at the main campus. It allows us all to be in our own space, our own creative space, but have others around us. And there's a a wonderful reflective quality because there's an ancient Chinese saying that calligraphy is a picture of the mind. So it's one of those actions in life. I mean, it's ancient because really we've been doing it with the line in the sand or some pigment on the cave wall. It's something of making a move and leaving a trace behind like I was there. So I'm just working with buckets of ink and larger brushes, and it's giving me and anyone who joins me in these workshops information of where I am right now. And in these workshops, we fold all the pieces up and throw them away, put them in recycling. So it's not even about the product. It's just generating something so that we see ourselves and each other in that creative process. And it's very enjoyable. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're, you're just hitting all the things I wanted to talk to you about, too. So, I mean, let's jump into it. Calligraphy. Here we go. So what I'm curious is, so you've kind of touched based about it. So at this moment, you're kind of talking about big brush calligraphy. Can you describe that, what that means to the audience a bit more? And, you know, you are talking about like bigger brushes. How big is the brush? You said you make them. Is there like a special way to make them? And how large are these sheets of paper that you're talking about? Because I've, you know, I've seen the photos and I've seen your work and sometimes they can span a whole entire room. (laughs) Sometimes they go even longer. Sometimes they can go around the room a couple of times and being in community. And it's like a timeline. Yes. because of the paper's length looks like a timeline. So you got so much width and story to tell and just the style that you have. And I'm, I'm just wondering, can you explain Big Brush to the audience a bit more? Hmm. Well, something about scale is interesting in any form to play with, to work in any discipline very small and intimate And then to take that same process and expand it. So, again, I love the intimacy of handwriting. I love the uniqueness of handwriting. And I found that for myself, I could broaden my aliveness in working larger and larger. And I think this is a tradition in Asia. There is a whole grass style of calligraphers in Japan. There's a expressiveness that this tool kind of calls for at times. And it was some combination that Chogim Trungpa had come from a broad-edged pen tradition in Tibet. I had come from a broad-edged pen tradition, so that's flat-edged, thick and thin, Mine were reed or metal, his were wood. And, you know, that I had been drawn to him and he had been drawn to Japanese brushes and he was doing Tibetan calligraphy with a brush and I began to do Western calligraphy with a brush. But there was something about scale that was what I needed right then. And I think that the working larger brought, it became a community art 
experience because you need other people around. You need people to help set up. It's not only needing them, it's that the whole thing becomes, it becomes something about the collective, all of us together expressing something. And I think art has been maybe perceived, there's so many different ways to perceive art, but that sense of the solo artist. And something that happened for me at Naropa was that I became part of a bigger offering. And my karma, I could say, it's an Asian word, was that throughout history and throughout the world, calligraphers have often aligned themselves with different religious traditions. So it made sense in some way to be drawn to a Buddhist. I could have been drawn to a Christian, Muslim calligraphers, Tibetan calligraphers. There's something about the synchronized act that calligraphy creates. And what I love about this is that we have this all this idea that it should be good to be synchronized. That would be a good thing to do. But then when you find an action that just does it in the doing of it, it's not like it's coming from a more whole embodied place. It's just to make a calligraphic stroke, you have to collect yourself. It's something that humans have always known, that it's some way that what's inside us and in our thoughts and in the space, we bring out into form. And it's magic. It's a magical thing that happens. When you say collect yourself, what does that actually mean? What is it that we are collecting? Is it our thoughts? Is it our feelings? Is it our, are we like trying to promote something or are we trying to push our daily thoughts away of, I need gas, I need to get eggs. Mm. And you're just trying to be clear of, are you trying to be clear of mine or are you trying to like fill it? Mm. Or something. Oh, God, you've just said so many different things. I did. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, just coming from doing this workshop and, uh, you know, we went around and talked about what the experience was for each person. And a lot of people just said, this brought me into some kind of slowness with myself. There's a steadying. It's like brings us to the place that we really want to live from. And it's not oh, I have to be very mindful and be very careful. No, it's very dynamic what's happening. But the way it naturally happens is that you get centered when you do it. It's what the body instinctively knows. You're, you're about ready to make a stroke and you're going to leave something behind and you got to be centered. So just to have an act that supports that in yourself is a good thing to be doing, you know? And being centered is very beneficial, it's beneficial. for everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, great. So I find this very amazing because it. I love that story about you and Trungpa having this yielding pens. Mm-hmm. And then when you came together, a collaboration of discovering more brushes. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that I'm wondering is there's many different types of ways of doing calligraphy. You can do it with a brush. You can do it with a pen. You can do it with paint. You can do it with a huge brush, you can do it standing over your paper and be like running down a hallway and just stroking this like huge piece of paper. Mm-hmm. Or you could be using charcoal. 
you know? Hmm. And hmm. I'm wondering, do certain types of calligraphy, like you never use charcoal and Roman calligraphy, is there like taboos or is everything just allowed to do whatever you want? Or like Japanese needs the ink, the black ink with the white scroll paper. Is right. there specific ways to do things? Right. I think the inherent quality of a calligraphic mark is that it's immediate, it's direct, and you don't go back and touch it up. <laughs> There's no eraser. There's, <laughs> you could, you know, but you know when you're doing too like much of it. like a tattoo cover up. You can't really get rid of it. You just kind of like re-go over it. It's like you commit, okay. you know. And it's not only the committing, but it's that it's fresh. I think that's what we all, when we say, oh, that's a calligraphic painting, say, it's that there's some kind of freshness to it. So I came from calligraphy can have that worked over quality and pen calligraphy has an edge to it, but still it's fresh because, you know, for a long time in history, it was forgotten how these Letters were made way back in the Middle Ages. You know, we have uh, amnesia, and it was sort of thought, or even Roman capitals, maybe they were outlined and filled in, like drawn letters. But then there was a, there was a man named Edward Caddish who was a, had been a sign writer in Chicago, and he became a priest in Rome. This is like in the 20s. And he's wandering around Rome, this young student of Catholicism, and he began to look at the Roman inscriptions that had been carved that were still there all around in Rome. And he said, there is a chisel-edged brush inside those letters. And it had been forgotten. They thought that this was something that was like being drawn, outlined, and filled in. So he, he wrote a book called The Origin of the Seraph, which is the word for the foot, um, because that gives a certain character to it. And he said, there is the life of the hand with this brush inside these letters. And it sort of brought back this awareness of how they'd originally been made. So it's understanding that direct, steady, you got to be centered. You can't, like, I have things where I don't have enough energy. I'll say, I don't have enough chi in me to do calligraphy today. Like, I've got to feel collected. If I'm tired, I can't do it. So it builds one's strength in that way, or it, or it requires one's strength. And you don't try to do something when you're worn out or off balance. You go, oh, I think I need to rest instead of push myself. So it has an aligning quality. Okay. And you said something about commitment. And I was thinking it's probably easier to commit when you're present. <laughs> Yeah. Then if you're not, if you're like, ah, I'm just thinking about my day and right. I can't, you want me to make a perfect line? Like, oh, geez, like, I don't know if I can do Too this. Too much pressure. Yeah. yeah but yeah, if yeah. you're just mindful, you're like, yeah, that's the line. Yeah. <laughs> there we yeah. go. Yeah. And you know, that's beautiful the way you just said it, because I speak about it in this brush practice that you approach the paper with a sense of trembling and Trungpa would even say positive panic or positive bewilderment. Like, I don't know how this is going to work out. And rather than that be a problem, I should be confident. I should, I'm ready to commit. You don't know. You just don't know. But you're going ahead, a certain kind of, I'm going to do this, holding that sort of little vulnerability. Then you're in contact. You're, you're moving on the page. 
something has happened. And then you step back and you go, that's how that turned out. Huh. Okay. Or you could go, oh, you know, that didn't, isn't so good. You know, you could have some kind of comparison. Or you could let that all go. Trungpa said that it's the deepest practices, no regrets. That's how that turned out. There's another stroke that's possible. So I think it's, it's building some way of living, one of those practices that, you know, as they say, you can't be a good calligrapher if you haven't worked on yourself. So it's, it's exposing, it's a very exposing art. Maybe all art is exposing, but it's the one that I'm working with. I think that's why we're all bashful about our art. We're just like, don't look at it. No, please don't judge me. What do you think? Do you like it? How do I look? Exactly. (laughs) What I'm hearing is when you're present and you're making these lines and you're doing calligraphy, it's such an expression in the moment that you can't, you can't redo that. It's never going to look the same. Right. But it is a timepiece. Right. And another thing that just think of when you said that is these performance pieces that are on exhibit at the um, Cube Gallery, the Nalanda campus this month of April. I'm working in a way where I can't see what I'm doing. There's no time to step back and say, how's it looking? How am I doing here? I just have to stay in the moment responding. So I think that's a good thing to, you know, we want to be mindful, but we don't want to be always like checking to see if I'm okay. You know, there's some way that it's, it's, um, it's, yeah, I'm swimming. I'm, I'm, it's like I'm in Jane the water. Carpenter. Whoosha. <laughs> Whoosha. Is that what she Throw said? Throw it out there. <laughs> All right. I feel that too. I, I do feel like, especially with artists and creativity and showing and performing and creating it, there's a sense of you're only as good as you physically and mentally are able to be good at, mm. but your mind has this ability to see yourself better than what you are. And I always mm. think that's what you're doing. You're, you're constantly judging yourself. So you have your actuality. And then you have your, what I can think I'm better as. I think of it as like headlights in fog. Mm. And so as your car moves forward, so does, so does your like ability to think you're better. Yeah. And so the, the better you get, the better you think you can be too. Yeah. But it, the commitment is loving something enough to where it doesn't make you feel good that day, but you still do it anyways. And the next right. day you're just like, I really do love this. Wow. Right. right. I, it's loving and it's some aspiration to... Keep moving that car along in the dark. And you can just see that far. And I want to keep going on this journey. That's beautiful. And it's kind of fueled by curiosity and love. And it's a true path. We all are looking for what those true paths are. There are many forms of it. but Yeah, and the paths could be, how you said earlier, they can be the heritage. Yes. And then our appreciation is, as artists, if you, if you see like a jazz guitarist and you're just like, oh my God, you're amazing. You know they spend a lot of time on that. And their commitment is loving that instrument. They're, it's not like, oh, I'm just naturally talented. Look at this. Whatever. It's like your talent is loving something enough to where you've practiced that enough to do that. That's right. It's like those 10,000 hours things. Yeah. I have a story where I was working... During those years at Naropa, I had, was hosting Ed Young, who's a wonderful, is still wonderful Chinese Tai Chi teacher, calligrapher, 
had been teaching at Naropa, and I brought him in to teach something called the grounding brush that was a very ancient, making a straight line with clear water. I just felt it was a taproot to Western and Eastern thought, the making of a single line. And then we were doing drawing workshops, and it was a, it was a rich time with Ed. And I thought, I need to have Ed meet Choigim Trungpa. Here are these two teachers, and they're both calligraphers, and they'll have so much to talk about. And so I arranged this meeting, which was tricky to do during those times, because Trungpa had a very complex constellation of people around him and schedules. And Ed was kind of a Taoist. He was very, he didn't have much extra trappings on him. And Rinpoche was working with richness of, it was, it was two different views. But Everything there, was shiny. You it was shiny. Any direction. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. But I, we managed to get in, got an appointment. We're waiting to come in to meet him in his suite there on Pearl Street. And the three of us got into the room. I mean, Rinpoche was in there and Ed and I came in. And I thought, all I needed to do was put these two together and they'll just be chattering away. But it was totally silent. There was nothing happening. And they were both just sitting there. And I was, my panic, you know, in trying to get something going. You're like nudging someone? Like, nudging. come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Say I said, something. I said, Rinpoche, we're, we're, we've been studying Chinese pictograms with Ed. And I'm leaning forwards, you know, kind of in my awkwardness. And Rinpoche said, oh, yes, I'm studying a little bit of kanji here. And Ed very slowly said, oh, oh yes, I've done a little bit of kanji. I, I'm familiar with that. And then another long pause. And, and then Rinpoche turns to Ed and he says, I'm not a very good calligrapher. And Ed turns to him and says, Neither am I. And we all three just started laughing because it was sort of the, the fundamental vulnerability of the art <laughs> is that you don't say, I'm a really good calligrapher because it's just how exposed you can be to yourself and that that's something that's alive and always moving ahead on the road there. <laughs> It's funny how that happens, though. You, you have two people, they're different, but they have a passion in the same expression of art, creativity, and it just like doesn't, constellation, something's in the way. Yeah, well, they, I was clearly the nervous one. They were fine, but they'd come from Asian cultures. I just had some idea that, you know, I think it was my Libra nature was like overstretched right then. You're so democratic. You just want everybody <laughs> to be happy. And, and talk awkward. to each other. Yeah. Come on. Come on, guys. Get it. Get Start it together. Talking. But some of that vulnerability was our, was our connecting piece. And then I don't remember what else was said, but I know we, a lot of other things were talked about at that point. It sort of broke, broke through something, just acknowledging that. Okay. All right. So you sort of mentioned it before when you were talking about Trungpa about there's this phrase called heaven, earth, and man or human. And it's like an Asian principle that Chongyam Trungpa was teaching you and he, he taught this at Naropa as well. And I'm wondering how has that affected you and your art and how has it, you know, maybe shifted over time? And uh, the reason I ask you this too is because I did a uh, Chinese a martial art called Xing Yi. And they did heaven, earth, and man as well. And what I've noticed is like heaven's gravity pulled you up. 
Earth's gravity pulled you down. And then the Dan Tian, that's where heaven and earth meet. So that's where man is created or person. And so I've always felt really connected to that principle. And I'm curious with a calligraphic lens over it, how do you see that and define it? Mm, yeah. Well. That was a big one. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Chagim Trungpa brought these principles. He was a translator. And so he was expressing them, describing them to a Western audience in an ancient but a fresh way. Uh, and he applied it to so many different situations. I mean, he was doing flower arranging and working with environments. And it was, it gave me some holding, some, I guess I could say conceptual, but it really wasn't conceptual. It was like, this is life on this planet. And it's not that the human is the center of things because we just have our own perspective, but that's the only perspective we, each of us has our own perspective. So to look at it from how do you begin an act? If we just talk about the creative process, using these principles, how do you begin with a sense of space, uncertainty, kind of wonder what's going to happen? How do you connect through tools, through grounding, through expression, and then how do you appreciate what you've done? So I took those, and when I was asked to create a calligraphic experience for this Authentic Leadership in Action conferences up in Halifax, uh, they said, okay, Barbara, you will have 45 minutes and we'd like you to create some experience for people who've never picked up a brush before and, like, distill something down. And I knew I couldn't do the alphabet or Chinese characters. It wasn't going to be that path of calligraphy. That's the slow, imitative, deep, good calligraphic path. I was going to do something different, but I still needed bones you to work with. You can't go the with. long path, 45 minutes, you right? You can't. I had to do the fast path. And yet it didn't feel that I was diluting it. I, but I had to have some structure that like the alphabet and characters give structure to calligraphy. So I realized that these principles could be the structure that could hold us. Like that the constraint, you could say, that could then allow for all this expression to happen within that. And so I had people go into these making of big brushstrokes with that sense of uncertainty, sense of connection, sense of appreciation, just as a starting point. Then what's the beginning? Then what counters that? Then what completes it? So it's like we're doing it in a brushstroke, but you could say any project has these same things of what's the big view here, then how do we get into it, then how do we resolve? And it just kept opening for me that my natural history drawing that was also happening at the same time here in Boulder, I was connecting with naturalists and doing botanical drawing and illustrating for books, I began to take people outdoors and say, here's a sketchbook page. Let's start with something that's in the sky 
draw that. Something that's on the ground, draw that. And then a detail somewhere. So three things on the page. Three, a conversation was happening, the way you'd have three brushstrokes. And then this interest in combining words with images, I'd say, now describe each one of these elements. Soft, wispy clouds, dense, mossy rocks, one bright berry. And something about the adding words to the three-part experience of taking in the environment gave me information of, oh, there's something about the brightness of that berry or even the brilliant brightness of that berry that is bringing me into connection with the moment. So I began to use it with illustrated journaling and then use it with three-part poetic haiku type things. It's kind of my own version of it, but first line is what's an expression of the space. Second line is what's an expression of the ground. And third line is what's happening in the heart. So it became a visual practice that became like a personal contemplation or inquiry or insight, became an insight practice. I'm hearing a lot of threes. There's a lot of threes. There's a lot of threes. <laughs> and I'm also thinking of the I Ching. The I Ching is like highly devoted to three, six, and um, yes. just the Multiples 64s. of three. Yeah, yeah. the eights. Yes. And yeah. I'm loving how the Chinese principles tend to like have these principles or hierarchy, not hierarchies, but... But it is a kind of, yeah, like yeah, a like, natural hierarchy is what we say. Yeah, yeah. like the they have like pillars of right. foundational roots, heaven, earth, and man. Right. You know, heaven needs man and earth. Right. Earth needs man right. and heaven, you know. Right, right. And one thing I was really loving is so, so you mentioned illustrations. And so you also do like books and illustrations and stories. And a lot of your illustrations, I noticed the principle of three again, where you would have, I would consider it like the heaven. So you just have a very washed out, more watered down, not so bold color ink it just holds the space and then you have your like deep dark brush stroke and that feels like earth it's like here's what you stand on and then you have the red thing the little red um you know little words signature. or letters or yeah, something yeah. just something pop out and it's really small and that feels like the person it's like this bright colorful dynamic piece on the page and i've noticed it it always comes in three and it's very beautiful and I was wondering, can you also explain a little bit more about your illustrations and how that may be different from the big stroke? And how do you approach the illustrations of a book compared to a workshop, a big brush stroke or calligraphy oriented art? Yeah, I think the illustration was touching back in on that precise part of myself that I spoke of originally with the pen calligraphy, that it was a very loving It was my curiosity about the natural world and lovingly creating a creature with each little hair on its body. And so I, I, uh, you know, here in Boulder, I became interested in the interrelationships out there. And I had um, this woman, Audrey Benedict, was really taking me out and showing me those interrelationships. And then I wanted to make children's books that would express 
the interrelationships around a tree. So it's you've got information about the tree and you've got information about birds and insects and creatures, but I got to put together, starting with the saguaro cactus, what is the constellation around this tree? I never use the word sacred, but the tree is kind of holding a space for all those interrelationships. And what I said when I, you know, thought about what I was doing was children's books, nonfiction children's books, it's going down to what's essential in the story. I'm not simplifying anything. I always was checking with biologists to make sure that I really had it correct. So it's children see something essential. And so I got to have a good run of doing books about trees in different parts of the world, the African baobab tree, the Indian banyan tree, did a book about bats, did a book about urban birds, you know, so it was uh, kind of journalistic. I moved from one place to another. But eventually, that precise form was not what I needed anymore. And so my book, True Nature, which was an illustrated journal, was more sketchbook. It became that kind of, I was coming to that looser calligraphic place. So still book, still within the constraint of the book form, but I don't need to work in a real detailed way. I'm more catching stuff in the moment okay. and liking that. One of the pieces of art that I was really digging is the way you do botanical art because you're drawing the plant and it's just really detailed, but it's also very whimsical and fun and it, it has the color where it needs the color. It's very identifiable. And then you have the words or the correct the way to say it in its botanical way. I just love that, the way it looks. It looks like a wizard's <laughs> book that you would read a, a spell from or something. Oh, it or is a, a spell. Conjugation, and it's it just is. so cool. I love that. You know, it started out because of this love of word and image together. I think that was way back for me, that I would draw something as a child, and then I would put the name of it on it. Something about humans naming things. You could say, well, that's, that's like putting a label on something. It's not experiencing it. But I feel it's taking the magic of the alphabet, the sequencing of things, the way humans make a relationship with things by naming it. And then, of course, you have the Latin names that give other information. So that was the thing of start with the image. Then when you write, Maybe just label the name, but then it really became, what's going on with me right now? Why did I choose these things? See, the world is always speaking to us and reflecting something so that it's touching parts of myself that I chose to draw that particular thing in the sky activates something in me and that I chose to draw something on the ground and I chose to draw this detail. And I've gone in and done this with large groups of people, even with kids in um, elementary school gymnasiums. I want to do it. This sounds fun. Like, <laughs> it's let's totally go outside, fun. <laughs> grab some paper and be like, okay, let's look at the sky and find what we want to yeah, see. Yeah. It's really cool because when you do art like that, it seems as there's different points of focal points. So as a videographer, 
you know, say I'm shooting an interview with somebody, they're my focus, but I want the the bokeh in the background. I want everything to be faded and wishy-washy and not in focus. So I want my focal length to be shorter. And what I'm noticing is some of your art has that focal depth to it. You're letting the paper have more depth to it, even though it's like a 2D piece of art. Mm, God, I got to go back and look at it again. That's a really interesting way of seeing it. <laughs> this is what I'm seeing. I don't know. What do you see? But that's how I see it. Is the heavens is more of a of an experience. It's a thought than it is like something you can see and touch. I, mean, I guess that's arguable too. Yeah, because when I do this, when I do these kind of spontaneous three line poems, which I do with groups, I say, okay, I want someone to give me a heaven line, and I'm going to write it out in a way that looks like what it is. Or I could say a sky line. And I said, I don't want it to be, I'm requesting that it's not like world peace or aspiration or something. No, it's like... It's like a 1990s work poster. <laughs> like admiration. <laughs> no, we're not doing eagle. that. <laughs> we're like choosing an actual thing that's there. And there's some reason why we want to bring that into the space. It's concrete, you could say. Even though it's sky, which has like a lot of space there, but it could be a hawk flying or it could be trees touching or it's something about relating to our world and letting it move us. And that experience of drawing is an ancient practice of connecting that in way, way back in our psyches, that's what humans did. They would draw something in order to share its power. They would draw the bison. They would draw the moon. They would draw, you know, it, would, it's a, it gets a humming, magical exchange going on. And that's why drawing is a Dharma practice. That's why calligraphy, which is your drawing letters, it's something of, again, bringing what's inside out and then having it communicate so that we're sharing our experience you know it's like yeah. not so alone i'm having this thought as you're talking about it of people in a cave back in the day drawing for the first time and what i'm thinking is the first drawing was probably more of an it than an act you know they draw the animal they draw the person they draw the spear they use and then once they learn how to draw all that, then they have the components to tell a story. Then they draw the act of the hunt. They draw all the people. They draw all the, the symbols together. So it's almost like calligraphy is the it, and then the expression of calligraphy is the act. Right. It gets sequenced, and it starts to tell a story, or it starts to have a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. There's another three right there. <laughs> right. <laughs> This is awesome. So my other question is, so you, you're a storyteller, you're a poet, you write books, you do many forms of calligraphy, many forms of painting with, whether it be with ink, with pen, with charcoal, with all these different things. But you also collaborate with a lot of people. You collaborate with dancers, musicians, other storytellers, performers. And my question to you is, how do you approach the different ways to collaborate with different types of artists? Are you doing the same thing or you're just like, you're more of a big brush paint 
performance and then you know a musician's more of a um i don't know like just how do you perform collaborate and perform differently with different artists Hmm. well this all really started at naropa this collaboration started with jerry trying to bring you in the class right it started (laughs) with uh, jerry grinelli right so it's about friendships artistic friendships so you sort of know each other and there's a trust that you're gonna support each other you know it's you're not out to leave someone hanging out there you know so there's there's not collaborating that's not collaborating right we're talking about collaboration um so but i also remember jerry saying to me once this was a couple years before he died and we were teaching a workshop together and it was all about getting people collaborating with brushstrokes and different things and and I said, well, it's a conversation. He said, no, BB, it's not a conversation. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're in service to the third thing. It's not just, you know, conversing. It's something that you're loyal to that is what? Is it the space? I don't know that he even gave it a word, but I loved the idea that there was some some loyalty to something bigger or in between the two of us, and it became something more. So I just have always held that out as maybe it's just the intuition that's working. I don't know. It's a deep question, but it's made me feel not as alone in my process, and it's taken me into places of taking a chance and I think it's you know I remember once coming off of a performance and someone said you look 20 years younger right now (laughs) you know it was just like it had a youthful quality to it it's enlivening and I what I really do love that art baby (laughs) it is and I want everyone to feel that they can do it too it's not like oh there's certain artists that are up there that can do it. I think at the end of these authentic leadership performances, we just put on great music and everybody would just get up and dance, you know, just that life of the body and interacting. So I don't know, did I answer your question? But there's some there's something about coming out of the solitude and finding ways to dance together. And that's a great lucky thing to have happen. What's interesting too, what I was hearing when you were talking to Jerry and he's telling you that you're not having the conversation of art, you're channeling the conversation of art. So instead of saying what your art is and when in collaboration, you're listening to the other artists, you're listening to the vibe of the room, and then you perform upon that with your skills. So it's like you're translating the message. Somehow. Is kind of what I'm hearing him saying. It's mysterious, yeah showing up like oh i'm gonna do line art right it's like you show up and you're like man this feels like a more curvy art type of room i don't know right right and maybe that it's not quite as simple as just call and response he was saying it's not that simple there's something more that we're allowing in here and we don't know what it is but keeps us kind of on our toes and keeps us not knowing and it's what makes it open you know for everybody Okay. It's beautiful. So you're in town this week because you're visiting Naropa 
to be the Lens Foundation Distinguished Guest Speaker. So congratulations <laughs> for being the speaker on that, mm. which means you are the honored guest and you'll be giving a lecture to the community tomorrow. And I saw that your talk was labeled Mapping the Moment, the Calligraphic Voice. And I'm wondering, can you maybe not like do your speech, but can you just tell us some of the aspects and what you're going to be talking about? So there's an ancient tradition of storytellers going around with maybe a scroll under their arm and they come to a village and they hang it up on a tree and it's pictures, maybe the Ramayana or the Mahabharata, and they tell the story and they point to the pictures. As the people are listening to the story, they're seeing the story too. So it's, it's activating kind of two parts of their brain. What I'm going to do... That's a good way to remember it. Yeah. That's right. You can it's, always go back and see the the that's organization right. of photos. It's it is it's imprinting in, in they from, do that in churches where they see God right. getting on the cross. Right. All the stained they glass surround windows. you. Right. So what's going to happen tomorrow night is that I'm going to be telling the story of my creative process, and I'm going to be drawing it at the same time. So it it won't exist until it happens tomorrow night. Okay. <laughs> this sounds like a very wiredless mic sort of situation. <laughs> I will be mic'd, but I don't think the pen will be mic'd, but you will be seeing something coming from nothing. And I've got an idea of where I'm going and we'll see if the ink flows and I, I'll be feeling my way along. It'll be my story, but what I hope is that it will activate everyone's story like what is your creative path how is it unfolding how has it unfolded so i'm just telling my story but i'm also wanting it to be kind of a universal one there is a a sense of improvisation with this thing that you're going to do but there also is a outline so it's like how many pictures pictorials do you have of your story are you doing your entire life story? Are you just doing like your time with Naropa story? Are you doing like your in the moment life? You know, because there's certain different time frames yes. we can yeah. pick from. So yes. obviously you're going to pick from one. And you're also, I'm not going to make like 50 pictures, but I'll probably make like six. Mm-hmm. I don't know, three, mm-hmm. like three. So. Mm-hmm. so just to give you a sense, I'm going to have two lengths of paper, one on top of the other, that are 30 feet long. Okay. That's That's what I got to work with. It's kind of long. It's kind of long, and I got two of them. So one is going to be rolled up halfway through, starting another one. And I'm going to tell my calligraphic story. It's like where that started for me as a child, how that moved through my younger years, and then how I showed up at Naropa and how Naropa worked on me. And then we're going to do some, there'll be some improvisation within that, a big brushstroke at the end, and it'll be. That sounds fun. Over. I want a big bucket of paint. <laughs> yeah, everybody <laughs> wants a big bucket of paint. I actually bought very expensive paint like a month ago. I bought the second blackest black paint you can get that isn't toxic because the number one blackest paint in the world is like super highly toxic apparently. But I bought the second darkest black paint and it's matte. And I've been thinking like, what am I going to paint? <laughs> I want to paint everything. I'm trying to think of like what to paint and... Doing some calligraphy might be like, where's that? I think it might be. I think see what that paint has to say. 
through some forms. Yeah, see what the what the medium tells you. Yeah, beautiful. I was thinking about getting one of those little kitty cats that do the the arm that goes down the good luck cast, but getting one the stationary and painting that black. <laughs> well, this was a very beautiful conversation. I really love your your devotion to your art, your devotion to your craft, because calligraphy isn't just an artistic view. It's history. It's historic. And there's traditions and there's honoring lineages. And I love the the pursuit that you have and just your, you know, the ways that you do it. And you've been expressing it throughout your life. And I just love hearing all all your perspectives on how you do art. And it's mm. very beautiful. Mm. I love that, that it's it's a history, it's a lineage, and then it's right in the moment. You don't know, you commit something. There's no erasers. There's no erasers. <laughs> you can't erase paint. <laughs> you can't erase yourself. You have to just go on to the next moment. That's true. I mean, even in the Buddhist world, you you can't be erased. You just no. um, it's back to the bardo. <laughs> That's right. Go figure it out. Talk to your talk to your angels, and then go get rebirth somewhere. Yeah, you you pull on all the support out there in the world, which I believe is there in many energies, and I'll be drawing on them tomorrow night for sure. Very beautiful. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, and it's just such a pleasure to have you back at Naropa. And before you go, do you want to like maybe shout out your website or social medias or anything that you'd want to share to our community? Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I do have um, a very uh, engaging website with a lot of writings and calligraphy, and it's just barberbash.com. And then I have a visual blog called True Nature. It's a slow blog. I post occasionally, but it's little intimate moments of being in the world. And I'd love to have people visit me, contact me, be in dialogue. Wonderful. Thank All right. You. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Bye-bye. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.